Wow, it's always good to be reminded of who we are and what God's called us to do in this place. And it's fun to take a look back and see how far he has brought us. And we're still moving forward. Uh, well, you've probably recognized I'm not Pastor Rock. For those of you that don't know who I am, my name is George Furman. I'm your pastor of Adult Life Ministries here at ACAC. I minister here with a wonderful team, including Elizabeth, who's on the platform today. And it's our, our privilege to be able to serve you in that capacity. I'm pinch hitting this week for Pastor Rock, and uh, I count it a privilege to be able to do so and bring you the word of God today. So let me begin today by asking you a question. How often do you consider the fact that we exist and function within two worlds, a physical world and a spiritual world, a physical world that we can see and touch, but a spiritual world that we cannot. And the spiritual world isn't located way out there somewhere. It's all around us, and it overlaps and interacts with our physical world, although it exists in another dimension, one that's not always easy for our physical senses to perceive and discern. And scripture also provides evidence that what's transpiring around us in the physical world is highly influenced by and perhaps even determined by what's transpiring around us in the spiritual world and vice versa. In other words, action taken in one world directly affects the other because they're mysteriously connected in some way. Not only do we exist in these two worlds, but the Bible informs us that we're not alone. In fact, we're continually surrounded by other spiritual beings that we cannot see. Some of them are good, and some of them are not so good. Some of them look out for our welfare, but others seek to deceive and harm us in significant ways. And so with that as our backdrop this morning, our text today comes from Revelation chapter 12. It's a brief but fascinating chapter that provides a unique glimpse into the spiritual world. And among other things, this chapter recounts Satan's expulsion from heaven due to his rebellion and how he responded to that expulsion by preparing to destroy the Messiah as soon as he passed from the spiritual world into our physical world via the incarnation. And although Satan gave it his best shot, he failed. And his response to that failure is what I want to focus in on today. And so we're going to pick it up at the end of chapter 12, in verse 17, you can follow along on the screen. Then the dragon, who is Satan, became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And I've entitled today's message, The Invisible War. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the opportunity today to present your word to the church. But I admit that I can't do it alone in my own power. Therefore, I ask for a fresh anointing of your spirit so that my words fall with divine power on your people today. Spirit of the living God, fall fresh on me and have your way. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Let me ask you another question this morning. For those of you old enough, how many of you recall where you were the morning of September 11th, 2001? I can remember exactly where I was that morning because the events of that day are etched permanently in my memory. 
I was at work in an office building downtown, and I can remember how quickly we turned on the TV because we had heard that an airliner accidentally flew into one of the World Trade Center towers in New York City. And I can remember us watching the devastation and the carnage and the drama unfold with a group of coworkers. And then the unthinkable happened. A second airliner flew into the second tower. It was no accident. We were under attack. And 9-11 served as a wake-up call for America because it exposed a hidden enemy that most of us never knew was there until it was too late. An enemy so ruthless that hated us so badly that they were willing to plan patiently for years in an effort to murder as many of us as possible. Thousands died that day because we failed to recognize and prepare for a legitimate threat. We severely underestimated not only their capability, but their obsession for watching Americans die. And 18 years later, we are still at war because the enemy remains resilient and determined to do us further harm. And just like 9-11, the church is under attack today from a ruthless enemy that hates us. But this enemy lives among the shadows in the unseen world. In fact, we are at war, and it's a war between truth and lies, the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. And the commander-in-chief of the dark side is none other than the dragon himself, Satan, who our text today so clearly warns us is leading a furious charge to sabotage and destroy the church. And if you're a follower of Jesus, that means you are on the menu. We all are. And Satan doesn't operate alone. He has support. In fact, he was able to enlist one-third of the angelic host to join him in his failed rebellion, and they're still supporting that rebellion today, even though the final outcome has since been determined. And that means these demonic forces of evil are not content relaxing while they await their scheduled appointment with the lake of fire. They refuse to concede, and they're determined to seek, kill, and destroy until God finally brings an end to their hostilities. In fact, John warns us earlier in verse 12 that Satan is filled with fury because he knows that his time is short. In other words, his fighting days are numbered, so he's operating with a pressing sense of urgency. And he is enraged because he thought he defeated Jesus by manipulating the events that led to his crucifixion only to discover that the cross caused his defeat instead. He played right into God's hands. And referring to this mystery of the cross, Paul said, none of the rulers of this age understood it. For if they had, they would have never crucified the Lord of glory. He was duped. Satan was an unsuspecting accomplice to his own demise and to our rescue. So it's no wonder he's furious. And as a result, Satan's on a mission to cripple and destroy the church. He's our chief adversary and a jack of all evil trades. And he operates under a number of destructive aliases, things such as murderer and liar, accuser, tempter, deceiver, thief. Jesus called him the ruler of this world. And Paul referred to him as the God of this age. 
and he's a master counterfeiter. He can take things that are false and make them appear to be true and vice versa. He mixes just enough truth in with his lies that they seem reasonable and logical, even loving and necessary. And sadly, his false doctrines have not only fooled the unbelieving world, but they've infiltrated the church, diluting our witness and mocking God's truth. And Satan also specializes in stealth technology. He's able to operate undetected most of the time, and as a result, he's seldom under suspicion for his crimes against humanity. In fact, he never claims responsibility for the devastation that he incites. He much prefers to remain anonymous, allowing others to take the blame, especially God. And if that weren't enough, the Bible tells us he's also capable of disguising himself, leading our minds astray, and even outsmarting us. In fact, Revelation 12.9 describes him as the deceiver of the whole world. And so much so that through deception, he's even able to recruit and mobilize unbelievers in the physical world to work as operatives, assassins, and undercover agents on his behalf. Paul confirmed that when he said, the devil has taken unbelievers captive to do his will. Unbelievers are under his spell, whether they realize it or not. For example, Satan compelled Judas to betray Jesus into the hands of those devoted to killing him. What Judas thought was a strategy for personal gain was really part of a larger scheme initiated by Satan behind the scenes in the spiritual world. And Judas was ignorant to the ploy. And as a result, the scriptures warn us over and over again regarding the devil's intention and mission to launch attacks against the church. And one such warning we find in 1 Peter chapter 5. Be sober-minded and watchful because your adversary, the devil, pries around like a lion seeking someone to devour. And Peter's analogy here with a lion is spot on. I used to watch an old Animal Planet documentary called The Big Cat Diaries. In fact, I've seen every episode multiple times. And if you don't know what that is, it was a team of people that rode around in Jeeps filming the big cats, primarily lions, leopards, and cheetahs, in a game reserve in Kenya. And it doesn't take many episodes to realize that all lions primarily do is hunt and devour. They do rest and they engage in romance from time to time, but their chief activity is to hunt and devour. And unlike leopards and cheetahs, they hunt in packs and groups which makes them all the more dangerous and effective. And they're naturally attracted to the weak and the defenseless, those that are not alert to the danger. And like lions, Peter is warning us that demonic forces are on a continuous reconnaissance mission looking for weaknesses in us they can exploit in order to mitigate our witness and sabotage our walk with Jesus. And make no mistake, they do learn our weaknesses. Because even though we can't see them, we are constantly under their surveillance. They try to bait us into sin using weapons like temptation, deceptions, and lies, diverting our attention away from the spiritual and onto the physical, always appealing to the cravings of the world and the desires of the flesh. And according to Peter's warning, if we do not remain sober-minded and watchful, 
we can become easy targets that actually invite demonic attack due to our apathy and carelessness, just like 9-11. And Paul issued a similar warning in Ephesians chapter 4 when he said, and do not give the devil a foothold or an opportunity. In other words, don't feed the lions. Because if you do, you're only going to attract more and they'll be all the harder to get rid of. What Paul's saying is this, through things like hidden and unconfessed sin, disobedience, entertaining idols, it's possible for us to jar the door of our souls open just enough to create legal opportunities for demonic forces to come in and oppress and torment us. And by feeding lions, we forfeit ground or grant permission that allows them to dig a trench set up a stronghold or, an, or like an outpost in our lives. And it's important to emphasize that these warnings from Peter and Paul were intended for believers, not unbelievers, because they were writing to the church. They're urgent reminders that even though we belong to Jesus, we can still become a hostage or a casualty of war if we offer the devil a foothold or remain Unalert. Our enemy is dangerous, and our passage today puts us all on notice that Satan has declared war on all those who keep God's commandments and hold to the testimony of Jesus. I mean, it would be nice if once we were born again that we were somehow granted immunity and we were no longer targets for attack, but that's not what Scripture teaches. I mean, one day we will be granted that immunity but we're not there quite yet. So in the meantime, we're all presented with a choice. I mean, we can either roll over and play dead and pretend the devil doesn't notice us, or we can protect ourselves by raising our God-provided defenses and taking sufficient countermeasures. And the good news is, Jesus did not leave us defenseless against spiritual enemies. In fact, he's provided everything we need to defend ourselves. In fact, if we are willing to cooperate, the Bible provides us with a foolproof spiritual weapon that when properly deployed is capable of winning every spiritual battle we'll ever face. And this familiar weapon is described in James chapter 4. Submit yourselves to God, resist the devil, and he will what? Flee. It's a very simple formula. Submit plus resist equals retreat. The devil can do no other thing. And even though this instruction wasn't published yet, this is the spiritual weapon Jesus used in the wilderness when he conquered Satan early in his ministry. For example, Jesus submitted to God by following the leading of the Holy Spirit into the wilderness, where he further submitted to God by fasting and praying for 40 days. He was then well-positioned to resist the devil's proposals using the word of God. The bottom line is this. Jesus beat Satan to a pulp using submission and resistance. And all Satan could do at that point was retreat. And so using Jesus as our model and scripture as our blueprint, I want to suggest a few practical steps that can help us submit to God and resist the devil. And the first is this. Submit to the Holy Spirit in every area of our lives. 
No surprise here, because our ability to resist the devil depends on how well we're submitting to God in our everyday lives. And if we're holding back and refusing to submit some area of our life to the Holy Spirit, then our ability to resist the deceptions, the lies, the temptations of our spiritual enemies will be severely compromised. You see, Jesus was filled with the Holy Spirit and followed the Holy Spirit as a demonstration of perfect submission to the Father. In fact, according to his own testimony, Jesus only said and did what the Father told him to say and do. Submission to God really is the key to defending ourselves from spiritual attack. And as we become aware of the areas of our life that are not under submission, we've got to be willing to go after those things and bring them into alignment with God's will. And to the extent that we fail to do that or that we're willing to do that, we're in jeopardy of opening up footholds and opportunities for the devil to infiltrate and exploit us. You received the gift of the Holy Spirit when you were saved because God knew you would still need divine help navigating the world, the flesh, and the devil. And as our counselor, advocate, and guide, we need to listen for him and follow him and submit to him. Second, we submit in obedience to God's word even when it's hard. Jesus said to the people, why do you call me Lord, Lord, but you don't do what I say? Because Jesus knew that repentance was not genuine without obedience. And James put it this way, be doers of the word and not hearers only. Otherwise, you're deceiving yourselves. And if we deceive ourselves, how much more will the devil be able to deceive us, the master of deception? Look at it this way. If you were holding a rifle but refused to apply it when the lion charged, it wouldn't do you any good. You may as well be holding a squirt gun. And if we want to be effective at deterring spiritual attacks, we must be committed to obeying the word of God, even when it's not easy. Hear me now, especially when it's not easy. Even when it commands hard things like this, Live by the Spirit, not the flesh. Love others, including your enemies. Pray for those who mistreat you. Bless those who curse you. Forgive those who hurt you. Deny yourself. Die to yourself. Place the needs of others ahead of yourself. These are commands we don't talk about all the time because they're hard to follow. That's why the road is narrow, but we got to get on that narrow road. These are not recommendations or suggestions, and there's never room to cherry-pick the commands we want to obey and those that we don't, because when we cherry-pick, we deceive ourselves, and we weaken our ability to resist. But when we choose to submit by being doers of the word, we position ourselves to push back spiritual forces of evil, and prevent them from infiltrating and advancing their wicked agenda in our lives. Third, we submit by developing our intimacy with Jesus. Again, Jesus modeled this for us. 
Because in the midst of all that he accomplished and all that he managed to do, he was still able to invest significant time alone with his father in intimate relationship. He was never too busy to spend time alone with his father because he knew everything that he did depended on that. And when asked, teacher, which commandment is the greatest, he responded to love him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. That has not changed. Jesus invites us to intimate relationship with him. And intimacy with Jesus helps us in spiritual warfare because the closer we are to him, the harder it is for the devil to sink his teeth and claws into us because Jesus is more powerful than all the forces of hell combined. And Paul put it this way in Ephesians chapter 1. Jesus is far above every ruler, every authority, every power, every dominion, and every name that can be named. He has no equal. He has no rival. And when we draw near to him, the Bible tells us, he draws near to us. He's like the big brother that nobody wants to mess with. (laughs) He's our refuge and our strength and ever-present help in time of trouble. However, you knew there was a catch. It takes intentional time and effort to nurture our loving relationship with anyone, and Jesus is no exception. We can have as much of him as we're willing to pay the price for, but intimacy comes at a cost because in order to pursue it, we'll have to forfeit something else. Next, we submit by walking in the light with God and others. Jesus designed the church to function in community as a family. Why? Because we need each other. And we should all have at least one or two other people in our lives that we trust, that we can be completely open and honest with about who we really are in here, not out here. Someone that we can reveal our warts to and and share the sins that we struggle with. Walking in the light with God and others is liberating because it eliminates pretending and promotes humility. And God gives grace to the humble. And this is a biblical concept. James said in chapter 5, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you will be healed. Because there's freedom in living without secrets. But the devil does not want you to go there. He wants you to hide your junk because he knows that light dispels darkness. And light would hinder his ability to harm us. Villains hate the light. And Satan is no exception. Next, we resist by engaging the right enemy. And we so often get this one wrong. Even though Paul made it clear that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities and the powers in the dark world, and against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Let me translate that for you. People are not our real enemy. They're nothing more than smoke screens influenced by spiritual forces of evil. And if we're not careful, we can easily exhaust ourselves fighting against the wrong enemy. Hurtful family members and co-workers are not the real enemy. Government is not our real enemy. Special interest groups pushing godless agendas, as hideous as they sometimes are, 
are not our real enemy. To be sure, people are complicit for their evil actions, and they will be held accountable, but according to Paul, they're not the real enemy. And the more we focus on people, the more we fall for the devil's diversions. Our real enemies are spiritual forces of evil pulling the strings behind the scenes in the invisible world, just as they did to coerce Judas. Next, we resist by using the right weapons. Not only do we need to engage the right enemy, but we must use the right weapons. Again, Paul, where would we be without Paul? He clues us in on the truth. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they're spiritual weapons that have divine power to demolish spiritual strongholds. What Paul's saying here is we cannot launch an assault on spiritual enemies using worldly weapons because they don't work. They're useless and they're counterproductive. For example, when people hurt or threaten us, the devil will provoke us to reach for weapons like revenge and retribution, bitterness and unforgiveness, gossip and slander, backbiting and finger pointing, dishonesty and betrayal, and the list goes on and on and on. But these are ineffective at fighting spiritual enemies. In fact, when we choose to use these things, it's like turning the gun on ourselves because the, gain, the devil gains a foothold. Instead, we must use spiritual weapons against a spiritual enemy. And in addition to submission and resistance, we have a sufficient supply of spiritual weapons at our disposal. But here's the trick. We've got to be willing to use them. And to be perfectly honest, they're not always comfortable and easy to use. And they don't always provide seemingly immediate results. I'm talking about things like prayer and fasting. These take the battle directly to the right enemy on spiritual turf. These are spiritual weapons of mass destruction that invoke a supernatural response from God that engages the enemy we can't see in the invisible world. But God can see them. And remember this, there are strength in numbers. So recruit your kingdom friends in time of need to gang up on demonic forces. That's part of why growth groups are so important and necessary. Because you've got a small army of friends that are willing to go to battle with you in your time of need. Worship is another spiritual weapon because the Holy Spirit gets active when Jesus is glorified in an atmosphere of worship. And as John said earlier, worship doesn't have to happen just at church. It can happen anywhere. It can happen in your home, in your car, wherever you're able to carry a joyful noise. The devil hates Jesus. So worship music that honors him is irritating and painful, like scratching your nails on a chalkboard. We also have access to the full armor of God. Paul said in Ephesians 6, put on all of God's armor so that you'll be able to stand firm against all the strategies of the devil. And he's got lots of strategies. We need as much protection as we can muster up. I don't have time to get into these. You know what they are. The helmet of salvation, breastplate of righteousness, belt of truth, feet ready to carry the gospel, the shield of faith, and the sword of the word of God. And we need to put these spiritual weapons on and carry them every day before leaving the house so we can make our stand against the devil's schemes. 
And finally, we submit by trusting God as the avenger. I think the reason we feud with people is because we can see them, but also because we're afraid they're going to get away with something, and we need to hold them accountable. But the Bible says they're not because God loves justice. He is the avenger. And again, Paul reminded us of that in Romans chapter 12. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, because it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. And doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Look, when we attempt to punish the people that hurt us, what we're really doing is supplanting God in his role as avenger. And, and what we're saying, in effect, is, God, we can punish those that hurt us much better than you can. Please step aside. I'll take this one. But I implore you to resist that urge and let God punish the people that hurt you because he promises to repay and he'll do a better job than you anyway. Look, I've only been able to scratch the surface with this stuff. There's so much more here, but let me close with this. Over the course of history, the devil has done a lot of damage to this world and to the church. And it began way back in the garden, and it's not going to stop anytime soon, not until Jesus returns. And as the church has slowly lost its social and cultural influence over the years, quite frankly, due to our poor behavior and compromising God's word, we've seen Satan step in and win the hearts and minds of the people in ways I would have never dreamed were possible. And like 9-11, what's happening out there in the world today and in some places in the church should get our attention. And my goal today hasn't been to scare anybody but instead to raise our awareness and remind us that we have a real spiritual enemy who is a credible threat. And he lurks silently in the shadows of the spiritual world we inhabit. And his only remaining incentive, the only thing he has left to cling to is to take as many down with him as possible. It's all he's got. So let's remain on alert because he's looking for you. And let's remain also on our knees, directing spiritual weapons at spiritual enemies. And it all begins with submission and resistance. I think too many times we try to resist the devil without first submitting. Submission are the bullets in the gun. If we don't submit first, we're going to shoot blanks. I'm convinced that the devil can only harm us to the extent that we give him a foothold or an opportunity to do so. So let's not buy in to what he's selling. Here's your mission this week, should you be willing to accept it. <laughs> I want you to go home and spend some quiet time with God. Get out your journal and ask him, Lord, are there areas of my life that I have not brought under submission to you? And then listen for what he says and write them down. And chances are, many of us already know what some of those areas are. Write those down, too. And if you really want to go after them, share those things with one or two trusted friends. 
because they can pray for you and they can help you gain victory over these things and they can help hold you accountable. We live in two worlds simultaneously and we cannot afford to devote all of our attention to the physical world we can see because it's only temporary. Instead, we've got to keep one eye locked in at all times on the spiritual world that we can't see. Remember, the Bible tells us we live by faith, not by sight. Let's pray. Father, help us to focus our eyes on the things we cannot see and to live by faith, not by sight. Always trusting that what you have in store for us is far better and will last much longer than what the devil offers. Even though sometimes what he offers seems more attractive on the surface. Help us to submit to you in every area of our lives. And by your Holy Spirit, help us to remain alert, knowing that our enemy lurks just beneath the shadows looking for someone to devour. We thank you for your love and for your protection. In Jesus' name, amen.